Welcome to The Highway to Well with Derek Bell. Today we're talking to Brett Powell, VP and Wellness Consultant at the American Institute for Preventive Medicine. Brett's work focuses on generational economics and differences at the work site, where he addresses issues like connection, communication, and care. Today, we'll explore these issues, but we'll also talk a lot about the risk of compartmentalizing wellness and the need to move away from what we call traditional wellness programming to something that allows more creative expression, opportunities to connect with others, and build self-efficacy in our own care, be it physical health or mental health. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. here talking with Brett Powell, VP, Wellness Consultant for the American Institute for Preventive Medicine. I had the opportunity to see Brett when he was venturing into the wellness field and he brought a fresh voice. I was at the end of my tenure with the National Wellness Institute and National Wellness Conference and Brett was this new fresh voice in the field talking about how can we really work with generations and how can we bring wellness um, beyond the borders or beyond the definitions that we've been using because we had a whole new group of people coming into the field and coming into the workplace that were um, possibly of a different opinion about the way organizations work and the way that wellness works and what their needs are. Brett was that person really pushing the, um, the ideas out into the wellness field. And so since that time, I've been very curious and very interested to see what Brett's been up to and how he found his way into this arena and what he's seen across all the different organizations and the groups that he's worked with. So Brett, welcome to the Highway to Well. It's great to be here, Derek. I certainly appreciate the invite. And, uh, you know, after connecting initially, at, at really sort of the beginning of my career. And um, as you mentioned, as you were kind of facing out from National Wellness Conference, it's uh, it's great to reconnect here later on in both of our careers, both kind of in different places. So uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and, and you, so when you started really um, coming in and having a focus area, you were talking about wellness for millennials. And since that time, I know that message has expanded to helping us think about wellness and organizational success um, in organizations that have many, gen- you know, at, at like, you, like you've noted, like at this stage, we have more generations working together than at any other time. And now that we're coming into a phase where millennials are becoming the most populated group of people in our companies and organizations, how has that impacted our views on organizational life and well-being? And, and what have you seen across all the different sectors that you work with? Yeah, so I originally started looking at generations in the workplace as it relates to wellness programs, as you mentioned, by kind of dissecting my own generation, which is the millennial generation, and um, was really kind of uh, 
interested in that for a couple of reasons. One was I wanted a topic that I could look into where I could be perceived of as an expert, as a young person in the field. And as a young person in the field, you can't really be an expert in too much unless you're talking about yourself. So, um, so I figured, you know, why not look into millennials? But I also, the, the, the more I kind of looked at it, it made sense as a potentially overlooked group where um, young people sort of inherently think as though they are healthy because they're young. And so they tended to tune out wellness programs. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's not necessarily for them. I'm young, I'm healthy. I don't need to, uh, to go through the, the company sponsored wellness program. I can kind of tune that out. So, um, they seemed like a uniquely positioned group that could benefit from some targeting as it relates to trying to engage them. Um, but the more I looked into it, I thought, you know what, we have such diversity in the workplace in terms of generations. And as you mentioned, for the first time in history, we had never had four different generations working side by side. Um, you know, at the time, we still had many traditionalists or, you know, the oldest generation working. Obviously, it was dominated by baby boomers, you know, around 10 years ago. Um, a lot of Gen X and then the millennials were coming in at, at unprecedented rates. So you had these four very different generations working side by side. And to think that the 22 year old recent college grad, um, would be interested in the same things as the 55 year old baby boomer, um, just seemed like it was kind of outdated. Um, a lot of wellness programming had become a lot more tailored to where we were, um, customizing the messaging and the programs based on people's risk factors or, um, or desired health changes. And so, you know, if you were asthmatic, you'd get an, a, a program to, uh, to deal with asthma, or if you, you know, were overweight, you'd have a program to deal with, um, with overweight and obesity. Um, so why not also customize the messaging and the programs to help engage people of, of various generations? Um, the other thing that that's nice about that information is that it's readily available and that we, through other research in other fields, know what is preferred amongst the various generations. You know, um, there's the there's the obvious technological gap there where younger people tend to gravitate more toward higher tech approaches. Older people tend to gravitate toward more higher touch approaches. But it extends beyond that in terms of motivations, messaging. And um, if the goal is engagement and getting people interested in improving their health then why not use all of the um, available tools uh, to help increase that engagement yeah and and one of the things that I've been curious about and I've, I've thought about this as a wellness practitioner myself is the that transition that we've moved through like and you've talked about it so when we have with technology allows us to stratify and to identify certain groups of people. Now, for the most part, what we're doing is really targeting high risk groups. And so we tend to focus a fair amount of attention on those that have um, either serious risk conditions or multiple risk conditions. And we guide our programs to service them for the need of developing a return on investment. Now, when we start looking at the broader workforce, there's a larger population that isn't necessarily at risk, that may have health behaviors that are not 
what I would say, you know, are, are excellent health behaviors. But at this stage in their life, they're young enough that they haven't developed some of the risk that um, some of our older um, people at work or, you know, groups of people at work have, have developed over a period of time. And so that opportunity for us to engage people in wellness has really created this, this opportunity to transition our programming. But I wanted to ask you and what you've seen is I don't get the sense that we're, we've done this as well and as clean as we may have that there's still, it tends to be such a heavy focus on return on investment strategies that we end up still trying to manage risk conditions without trying to dive deeper into the pool of people that aren't, um, or that are not sick or haven't, haven't developed or have developed pre-disease risk to enough that they need medical attention, but they still are people who could benefit from wellness programming, who could benefit from developing better lifestyle habits to try to keep them healthy. I know, you know, Dee Eddington has been one of those people that's been a big proponent of trying to keep healthy people healthy. And just that message alone is significant for us, but in your work too, how have you seen that transition working and, and do we still focus too much of our attention into the high risk groups without putting enough attention into groups of people that may not have developed those risks yet? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good point. Um, I like to think of the sort of traditional wellness model, which is kind of what you're alluding to here with, which is, you know, risk stratification, focusing focusing on risk reduction and focusing on return on investment as both a blessing and a curse for our industry um let's start with the good news which is which is how it became a blessing um we were fortunate in that that traditional model served as sort of a template that did show positive ROI for a lot of organizations. I mean, there were a lot of studies that were published um, in the American Journal of Health Promotion and others that showed a positive return on investment for wellness programs. So I think what that did is it really allowed for the widespread popularity of programs in which, um, in which case CEOs, CFOs, HR, I mean, companies were waking up to this idea, oh, you know, we can actually save money on on uh on our healthcare costs if we implement wellness so i think it provided the opportunity to expand rapidly as a field i'm not sure that we would have seen the same expansion without um this sort of notion of of, of roi now fast forward several years and into the negative which is i think people tended to to focus on that too much right so it was the, the motivation for programs became ROI and we were ignoring all these other really sort of valuable things that you get with wellness programs. Um, you know, we were just overlooking the idea that um, employee morale and retention and recruitment and productivity. And how about just the fact that um, caring for our employees is the right thing to do. Um, you know, all of those other things were, were kind of overlooked at the expense of, uh, of this, this promised ROI. So, um, so I think that, that we, uh, that we, again, saw some benefit from it. We, um, we're now in a position where we're trying to overcome that because we've spent so many years, um, kind of hanging our hat on ROI. And so now we're, we're you know, 
attempting to to build out the case for VOI or value on investment, which I think is a much more fitting term in that it encompasses much more than than dollars return for a investment in a well-being program, but but all of these other things. Um, so you know we're trying to play catch up a little bit as a field, and I think I think that's okay. Um, but uh, you know we are where we're at, um, and uh, yeah, I think I think. Uh, if we're in, if if I had to attach a phase to it, traditional well-being with uh, with you know risk identification and and uh, and ROIs kind of phase one, and I would say we're kind of fully entrenched in phase two, which has incorporated VOI, which is great, and it and it's also um, looking at other factors like culture uh, you know how does how does the culture of an organization factor into employee well-being how does the culture of a community um factor into well-being and what kind of policies can we implement and what other things can we do above and beyond traditional wellness just kind of above and beyond you know physical and even mental well-being to treat the whole person and um and care for our employees in a way that um that certainly affects their well-being, but may not necessarily fit into that traditional model, which is great because I mean it's allowing for for creativity. It's allowing for um, for us to do things in in a way that um, that we may not have done before. Yeah, you know, and as that phase one to phase two concept is is something that I've talked with in some of the other leaders in the field too. Uh, I spoke with Brian Luke Seward a few weeks ago. We talked about how when he was beginning a lot of his work in stress management and talking about the benefits of meditation and other meditative practices, that there was that was seen as something that was a little bit hokey in the field because at that time we were so focused on risk reduction, cost containment, disease management, and wellness had especially in the organizational worksite setting, it had really developed, you know, what you and I call these traditional wellness programming ideas where we do a health screening, collect some information, stratify those who have like high blood pressure or are disposed to diabetes, either pre-diabetic or have current or currently diabetic um, and start to work with them and try to help them manage their lifestyle because that is what is uh, the, that, that's attached to some medical cost. And if we can change those medical costs, then the wellness pro program has some value. But what I've really liked and as, as the field has kind of evolved and you're pointing out here, like our, our ideas about ROI, we understand have some limits about how people think about them, you know, themselves and their work and how much they value their well-being that's not really easy to quantify. So ROI as a measure is a really good organizational measure, but it doesn't really measure the happiness or the satisfaction that we want out of our employees. And so the field has started to move in some ways back to where it was when it first started and talking about the whole person and talking about how can we live optimally and what are some of the... Um, 
things that we value and how can we become resilient? And are we invested in our personal growth and development? And that has been a refreshing message to see around. And, and I was just in a, a seminar about a week ago and we talked about moving away from talking about behavior change to behavior amplification and using processes that instead of focusing on negative behaviors and trying to change those is to amplify the positive ones, the ones that um, make us succeed and, and the ones that are, that make us happy, the ones that make us feel like we're connected to others or that we're really utilizing our creativity and start to really talk about those. And then how can we do more, you could say quantitative type research in our field or add ethnographic research about our stories, our wellness stories, and use those as driving forces behind wellness programming and change. And that is something, and, and I know in the session we talked about how that has, that's something that's a generational thing too, that, that younger people tend to, like, they, they focus on, if they're, if they're going to make a change, you know, word of mouth and social connections are so important that the influence that the closest people have around you are going to help you um, continue to live in a healthy way or an unhealthy way if they're choosing poor behaviors. But because of those, those connections, then we end up in trying to program or trying to think about wellness and programming in ways where we can um, move away from just those risks and the medical conditions into that, that whole arena of living vibrantly. And that is something that has attracted younger or healthier people, younger and healthier people to wellness programming at the work site. And um, wanted to know what, if, you know, if you see that as well in, in, in the work that you do. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts on that. First of all, I love the, the idea of, you know, from, from behavior change or behavior modification to amplification. Um, it's, it's such a, a more, uh, such a, a positive way to, to look at something that ordinarily could, could seem overwhelming or, or difficult, um, to individuals. But, um, you know, as far as the generational component there, I think we, um, and, and you have, you've mentioned a, a few um, heroes of mine uh, in the field. So Luke and, and, and also D, um, who D coincidentally, uh, you know, his, he lives here in Michigan and his, uh, you know, the health management research center was just, uh, about 40 minutes down the road in Ann Arbor. So, um, have enjoyed learning from him for, for a while now, it seems, but, um, yeah, I mean, here, you know, kind of point that, yeah, I know, I know he's just a, a true legend, but, um, yeah, I mean, his, his research really, kind of paved the way for our field as well. So, um, you know, and you mentioned his idea of keeping the healthy people healthy, which is, which is so spot on because when you, when you, when you focus on the, the traditional model of you know risk reduction, you end up with this stratified group and you end up with a small percentage of people and you're only focusing on them because they either have multiple risk factors or a serious risk factor and you're trying to reduce the cost. But, um, but in large part due to the research of D we know that, um, that those, 
ordinarily healthy people will become unhealthy, right? If, if you ignore them. So um, just, just over the years, they, they will end up accumulating risk factors. So the best asset you have is that group of healthy people. And so why not engage them? But um, the, the, I think it's very interesting to also look at the generational parallel. Um, the obvious one is that when you're younger, you're, you're less likely to have the onset of chronic disease just based on your age alone, but also the motivating factors behind why or why not you may participate in improving your health. Um, we kind of make the assumption when we introduce a wellness program that people want to improve their health. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're offering you this health improvement program because you should want to be healthy. And we, and, and we, we you know, that's, a, I think that's a big leap to make. That um, is a huge so one. <laughs> We've caused ourselves a lot of problems in assuming that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, I, as, as we are well aware, um, we were offering some really, really great programs. I don't think the participation issues we've ever had in wellness is due to um, inadequate programming or, mm -hmm. um, or, or programs that aren't good. I think we've always had good programs. Um, people just aren't always inherently interested in improving their health, um, particularly when it comes from their employer, I think can be an issue too. So there's some underlying issues with that. But, um, but there's a very, very strong correlation between somebody's motivation to be healthy um, and improve their health and their age. So um, in some of the research that I've done and taking a look at some of the research that, that others have done, um, we found that as people get older, and it makes sense, they're much more in tune with potential health risks. They've probably had some health issues of their own. Um, if they haven't, then they their friends have, right? They may have even lost friends or they have friends that have the onset of chronic disease or they have the onset of chronic disease. And so that motivation of health improvement stands a little bit stronger. But for younger people who, by nature of being younger, um, both in terms of actual health that they're, that they're experiencing and also um, what they're told from the media um, is that, you know, young is the, the model of health and they see, you know, young people on magazine covers and on television and so forth. And the, the, the image of health is always kind of this young, vibrant person. So there's this perception that young is healthy and, um, and younger people generally are less motivated by health. Um, but they, it turns out they are really strongly motivated people um, just in other areas. So like you mentioned, they're, they're really motivated by social connection. They're really motivated by, um, by uh, affecting the greater good and doing things that are kind of bigger than themselves, like environmental causes, social causes. So um, what we've found in our research is that when we can turn wellness programs uh, around and leverage some of those other motivations um, and not necessarily focusing only on the health improvements, but that, you know, um, let's take, for instance, uh, trying to encourage people to eat, you know, more plant-based or eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, you could tell an older person that the, the benefits of the nutritional benefits of eating, you know, um, fruits and vegetables is, is great. You know, um, that may not work as well for a younger person, but if you turn it around and tell them that if they shop at a local farmer's market and eat 
you know, locally grown fruits and vegetables that'll, you know, the impact that it'll have on the environment and on the local economy, um, they might listen a lot more. Um, or you want to introduce a, uh, a program for people to, uh, you know, to be more active, get their steps in, you know, um, rather than focusing on the health benefit that, that might resonate more with older people, you can talk about the environmental impact of reducing emissions for younger people um, or the fact that um, we would encourage them to go on walks with their coworkers as a time to connect. Um, you know, so there's just there's other ways of, of posing some of these things that we're trying to get individuals to partake in to um, to do it in a way that resonates more with them as opposed to um, making that assumption that everybody just wants to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we know that humans tend to to think more short term rather than long term, um, you know, in terms of immediate gratification. So um, sometimes it is tough to conceptualize what my behaviors today will lead to 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road. Um, so, so giving people reasons to do things that are just simply more enjoyable or, or more meaningful to them now is, a, is I think a good strategy and something that, um, quite frankly, I don't, I don't know that a lot of organizations are, are really doing in terms of trying to craft messaging in a way that resonates, um, in a more meaningful way to, to their potential participants. Yeah. I, well, I think that's, and you've brought it up and we've hinted at it, but early just in this, in this um, part here, we were just talking about the motivation. So in within the organization, what is supposed to be the motivating factor? What, when a, when a company is trying to deliver a wellness program, really, how are they doing it? And, and what are those, what are the expectations? And oftentimes it's, it's merely a checkbox, checkbox on their wellness program list to get some sort of financial incentive. And that has not been proven to be the most successful model to change behavior, which is the ultimate goal of wellness programming. While you may get a bunch of people to come show up for a presentation, it isn't necessarily something that's going to be a motivating factor in helping them live a better life. And, you know, I can, I, uh, when I was first starting as a practitioner in the field, I was asked to come to a men's health talk to a steel, um, steel fabricating work site and go into the shop area. And there's 40 guys there to hear about men's health. And, and I was told I was given explicit instructions to talk to them about their cholesterol, um, preventive screenings, really the nuts and bolts of men's health as a medical issue. And I couldn't have been more dissatisfied with my performance. And I, you can just, you're the, you walk in and you're the least like guy in the room because you're the wellness guy that manages <laughs> and to, to lecture everyone on cholesterol. And halfway in this presentation, I'm like, this was a bad idea. And I need to, <laughs> I need to go back to this company. And I went back to him and I said, look, I, appreciate that you want to do this for your employees, but this isn't the route that we should go. And I said, I have another idea. Can I, could I do a men's health talk? I'm fine if you want to call it that, but I want to do it on helping people find their purpose. I don't want to talk to them about connections, creativity, contributions, and their care. And so yes, we'll talk about care, but I want to talk about it as in like you talk a lot about, about in, you know, in your work, when you're talking about self-determination theory and um, building that 
autonomy and the self-efficacy is to talk to them about skill building rather than just declaring what numbers they should be paying attention to. And then talk to them more about purpose and have them go through some exercises where they're trying to figure out what roles they play in their life and the conflicts that these roles have with their work and their home and, and go a lot deeper into, um, I don't want to say mental health as mental health as, as, you know, studying conditions, but talk about our mental well-being, of course. And I found a completely different audience. It was just a completely different level of a presentation, but it goes to what you're saying that when we start, when we have these traditional programs and they're being put out there in organizational settings, they're usually focused on a certain group of people, a small percentage of people. And the expectation is that just because it's there, that people are going to want it. And we know that's not true for the most part. Anytime you're going to talk to someone about health, that message is not going to be, um, that's a, not, you're not going to get very far if you haven't built trust and an understanding that we want to talk about how this is all going to benefit you in a bigger way and talk about that almost like that existential part of, of our pathway to being the best human we can. And when we start developing programs that focus on these things, then we start to dive in deeper and then really get to what people want. And that is something that has extensions beyond generations. And you can work with boomers and do this, and it's a wonderful activity. Work with Gen X, work with millennials. We all, we all want to be part of something bigger. We all want to feel like we're going somewhere. We all want to have that, that feeling of, of and that internal motivation to live a better life because we're, we know what our purpose is. And so that's something that I've seen that works across some generational lines and, and it allows then the generate like people within generations to have their tendencies or have their ideas to keep those, but we're able to program in a specific way for them that really helps them get there better than maybe where we've been before. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, credit to you for, for, for taking what was a kind of traditional presentation and looking at it in a much more meaningful way um, where, yeah, I mean, you're spot on, right? So like if, if we're not, if we're not making this meaningful to people, then they're going to tune us out. Um, I, I feel like I could go on about incentives for, for just a whole other session. Um, but I mean, suffice it to say, um, while there is some like, some controversy in in the the research as it relates to to wellness programs and ROI and all that. There really is no um, controversy when it comes to the research on incentives, and it's pretty clear when you look at the data that for short term compliance, yes, incentives work with a with a very positive correlation. The more you pay somebody, the more likely they will show up and do something for you. You want them to fill out a survey, a, a health assessment. There is a direct correlation between the amount you pay them and the number of people that will show up and do it. But if, if we're after what you and I know we're both after, which is, you know, long-term positive health behavior change and health improvement, um, which is, you know, according to the research, those are considered more complex activities. Um, at best, incentives are um, do you no good, and at worst, they can actually undermine your goals. So, um, so yeah, when we, when we dangle out the carrot and try to get people to show up, um, we are not 
going to accomplish our long-term goals. We might get we might get our numbers up. It might look good temporarily, but um, but it's not going to be good long-term. So I think you're you're spot on with looking at ways that we can um, make this whole concept of, of living your optimal life and, and living a, um, a healthful um, life, one that is that is meaningful to a person in the situation that they're in. And I think purpose is a, is a prime example of that. Um, I think that we sort of probably put purpose in the same bucket that Luke thought stress management was in for a while, which is it's kind of fluff and we can't address that in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I really kind of credit where we've come and how far we've come as a field. And I credit a lot of the leaders um, before us, you being one of them, looking at ways that we can incorporate some of these um, previously thought fluffy ideas and, and, and saying, no, this is, this is real stuff. I mean, taking a look at, um, developing a a person's purpose and, and, um, taking a look at, um, you know, some of the self-determination theory stuff and, and, and allowing people to feel a sense of autonomy in their work, um, you know, mastering their work and, um, and just what, what kind of benefit that can have, um, not only on a person's productivity at, at, within their job, but also on their overall health and well-being. Um, taking a look at human connection, um, you know, these, and how the workplace plays a role in the ability for somebody to feel like they're they're um, achieving an optimal level of connection on a human level with other people. I mean, these are things that previously would have been thought of as way outside the realm of of what a company should be offering, and now I think we're um, very much in that stage of, of being open-minded and recognizing how important some of these other things are um, that may not be looked at as traditional wellness. I mean, yeah, we're not, we're not just screening you and asking you to walk more steps and eat more broccoli anymore. We're, we're asking um, you to think more deeply and we're from, from the, from the practitioner standpoint, thinking more deeply about ways to, engage individuals in in health improvement so um i don't know if that that i don't know if that helped uh <laughs> i don't know where i went with that but i but i i think we're so aligned in the way that we think about that that i probably reiterated um a lot of a lot of what you said kind of in my own in my own experience and and thought but um one, one more thought on purpose. I, I, I'm um, not sure if you're um, familiar with um, with the work that, that Vic Strecker does in the area. Um, oh, yeah. He's another yeah. another Michigan guy. So I, yeah. I, I got to give – I mean, I think he's <laughs> – sorry. Yeah, I know. Michigan's like this strange hotbed of, uh, of wellness. You know, Vic, Vic's mm-hmm. here at, at U of M and founded Health Media and founded um, – Jewel, which is now, I forget, they've got a new name, but I mean, I mean, Vic's an incredible innovator in D and, you know, we're here, Michael Samuelson, who was a big, big player yeah. in the field was, was here as well. So, I mean, some big, you know, kind of wellness names here in this random, random state of Michigan, but I guess you've kind of got a similar thing, you know, Wisconsin's not ordinarily, ordinarily thought of as a wellness hotbed, but, um, but you've got NWI there and, um, even like you're like the wellness council in Wisconsin is probably like the most sophisticated of, of all the councils. So you guys have some good wellness stuff going on too. Yeah, um, I think, uh, I think, you know, there was a bit done on good morning America in 1980 called Stevens point, the Mecca of wellness, because, uh, 
YMCA here had the largest per capita participant rate. Century Insurance was one of those companies was out on the forefront of employee well-being and building fitness centers. And then you had the National Wellness Conference, which at the time was the was the most unique and the only one of its kind. But um, but yeah, you you over there in Michigan, you're blessed with the amount of experts and you know Vic and and what you guys do at AIPM. It, you don't have to go too far to yeah. find some wellness experts. Yeah, it's it's kind of a cool thing. Um, I you know I remember when I used to go to the wellness conference and I'd tell my friends I'm going to Stevens Point. You know, it's like they're like, what? What do you <laughs> Stevens Point, Wisconsin? What what are you doing there for wellness? And you know, I have to explain that no, there's actually like this big national organization. You know, largest wellness conference been it's been going for 30 years, and they're like, oh man, you know, so. Um, <laughs> So yeah, pretty cool stuff. Um, but yeah, so so Vic, um, obviously, I, I mean, he's probably the most prominent proponent. Has been talking about purpose for so long and the benefits. And um, he, he has like a quote that goes something along the lines of like, "If purpose were a pill, it would be a billion dollar pharmaceutical." You know, so like oh, yeah. um, all of the all of the health benefits. You know, it's it's it, it kind of reminds me of like. Um, you know, like meditation, like if, if, if somebody practices meditation on a regular basis, there's like a laundry list of, I mean, literally pages of benefits that, that, that you get gain from, from a mindfulness practice and, and virtually no, um, negative side effects and purpose is kind of the same way where like, there's just all of these benefits to, to your life when you, when you, um, cultivate a strong sense of purpose, um, you know, even, even physically, I mean, your, 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 you know, biology even changes for the better when you, when you cultivate a sense of purpose. So, um, so, you know, I, I credit, um, I credit the field in general and some, you know, some outspoken leaders who were unhappy or knew that we could do better than the traditional model. And it's exciting to see where we're at now and, and certainly where we continue to go as we, evolve yeah yeah and i think vic is that perfect example of the arc of the field because he was out in that forefront with health media in doing a lot of the risk management and data collection and trying to use that to um, build some templates on how we can improve lives and then he himself really dove into purpose with the you know the tragic loss of his daughter and, mm-hmm. and I, I've been fortunate to work with him some and brought him here actually as a keynote for a, a wellness summit that we do here in Stevens oh, cool. with my healthcare system. And, um, and, I, and I've recommended and I've, I've sent either Life on Purpose or On Purpose, both of those out to a bunch of different people that I work with or I'm friends with and said, you got to read this. And what I love that Vic has done and others like Sean Foy and some of some of the others in the field and in Ryan, even Ryan Piccarello at Walcola is let's start asking the philosophical questions about wellness again. Let's get back to asking these are questions of our being. These aren't questions of our health or death mm-hmm. or health risk. I mean, those are significant, but that's not what we're really talking about. What we're talking about is how do we value our lives and what is it that's about value? And that's something that if you look at generations too, you can see that the whole concept and the idea of work has changed. And, you know, that's something where, um, you know, 
traditionally, or you could say like boomers and traditionalists, like they're more apt to be loyal to a company and be a company person. And then you started to see this transition with Gen X and millennials where, yeah, that's true, but we also have bigger ideas about what we want our work to be. And we've learned that being a workaholic is not necessarily the smartest thing for our health and well-being. And so we need to dive into things that make us feel like we're contributing to society more, that expand our creativity, that are um, building connections with others. We're far more apt to think about those things. And that's changed the whole nature of work. And when it does that, then it also changes all of our notions about wellness as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. I, I bring that up and talk about that a lot. Just, just kind of what are, what, what are some of the defining characteristics of each generation? And you're right. I mean, boomers, traditionalists, it was not uncommon for them to, um, you know, graduate college if they went to college and work for the same company for, you know, 30, 40 years, retire with that company, very loyal to that company. It was very much a work first mentality, very workaholic in nature. Um, and then we have, you know, Gen X and, and, and Gen Y come along and it was, um, you know, much more focused on work-life balance. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that has certainly changed the landscape of organizations and you even, you, you can, you can see it very loud and clear when, um, you compare some companies that are newer, you know, startup type companies that have been founded within the last, you know, five, 10 years compared to a company that's been around for, you know, 70 years, just in terms of the, the culture. And, um, it's, you know, it's very apparent, uh, that the, you know, the more startupy type companies are, are way more conducive to this kind of newer model of what, what work is and what, what millennials and Gen Xers crave from work. Um, so. Yeah. And, and of course, me being a Gen Gen X, then we were, we were out in the forefront of being lambasted for our, our, uh, our ideas about what, and I, and I like what Brian Luke Seward says is instead of talking about it as work-life balance, talk about it as work-life harmony. And because then you're talking about that, it balance to me is one of those words where you feel like you try to have equal parts. And that's kind of sometimes when we look at some of the old wellness models, you have these perfect pie charts and, and so should we live a balanced life? Well, what does that mean? Let's be fair. Like how many of us live a balanced life, but how many of us live a fulfilling life? And so, you know, Gen Xers got a bad rap for being lazy when we weren't lazy, we just had a different idea about where we wanted to spend our time. And by the way, we work just as hard as everyone else, but we may be hustling in three different arenas when you're just, you know, you're just busting it out in one. And so, um, that, that was always, um, that's something now I think generation X has, has redeveloped our reputation as being result oriented and resourceful and, and we're confident in what we do, but that was really a, a really stark contrast from where the boomers and the traditionals were. And then millennials come in and just blow it all up into several <laughs> different ways. Um, but, but it's just interesting. You talk a lot too about not only expectations of work, but you, you know, things that we don't nurse 
these are things that we may not necessarily be thinking a lot about, but issues like privacy and support for interaction and how that goes into building a successful organization. And so you have these different groups who have different notions about even having office space and people being able to hear you while you're working or sharing, um, you know, have environments in the workspace where people can collaboratively work together. Whereas some, you know, traditional boomers, they may not like that. They feel like they can't possibly get work done if they're working in teams in that setting. And so you have these contrasting ideas about even how even like a built environment might be, um, be, you know, be laid out for their employees to try to, well, you know, ultimately have organizational success be their, their be their measure. But how do you get there when you have these contrasting issues and real real different ideas about how work on a day to day basis is supposed to go? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a it's a it's an interesting conversation because there's certain things we can talk about that completely transcend the generations. Like you know, we talk about. Um, you know, building a sense of purpose and, and this, you know, the self-determination theory, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I love stuff like that. Cause like, it doesn't matter what age you are, you can benefit from that. And that's like a great strategy, but then we can talk about other things. Like you mentioned, like the built environment, which is something that I think often gets overlooked. Like I think companies make decisions around how they're going to design their workplace and, and how office structure is going to be set up. And they don't think at all about what the preferences might be given who their employees are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I I do. I like to bring in studies that, that talk about that and um, you know, baby boomers who are on, they're on the phone a lot. Like they, they're like, they're, when they think about talking to someone like their first reaction is to pick up the phone. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Xers and Ys are much more likely to like instant message someone or email someone. So, so for baby boomers, yeah, acoustic privacy is a big thing. So like there's been this huge trend for like open office workspaces. That's not good for like, we're kind of alienating a whole group of people by, um, by, you know, offering a, a big wide open space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I think it's funny cause we went to this whole like like open office trend and then it's like created a whole market for those like little pods that you put in the office where people can go get some acoustic privacy and it just seems like so (laughs) weird to like pay all this money for like a little phone booth essentially Mm -hmm. um when we we, you know we we kind of abandon any sort of acoustic privacy um but you know that you know talking about uh you know ways in which people communicate i mean there's just an overwhelming amount of opportunity for people to communicate now right so like you can talk on the phone um you can uh email and email obviously is very overwhelming and then now we have all these different chat platforms and persistent chat platforms like um you know what's the big one slack is like the the huge one and then microsoft has their their version microsoft teams so um you know that's initially that was initially i think created to reduce the amount of email but now you've just got another platform that you need to check all the time um obviously you have in-person meetings and virtual and virtual video meetings and i mean there's just so many different ways to connect with people and there's preference there amongst the generations, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of what the way in which they um, prefer to communicate. 
Um, I always, I, 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 I like to give an example here and it's kind of like a sappy example, but it's the, it's the one that I think, um, makes the most sense. Have you heard of the book called the five love languages? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So stay with me here for a second. Um, for anyone that's listening that, that, that isn't familiar, it essentially gives, you know, five different ways in which, in which people might prefer to, to fall and be in love. And it talks about like physical touch, receiving gifts, acts of service, so on and so forth. And the idea is to open up your eyes to the idea that you might prefer to love in a way that your partner may not. And you're, you should recognize the way in which your partner likes to love. And even though you might, um, like receiving gifts, they might like acts of service. And so that's kind of enlightening to, um, to love people in the way that they prefer to be loved. And I think of communication in the same way in that, um, you might, your, your preference might be to, um, to instant message somebody in the company, but, and so that's the way in which you always prefer to communicate. So that would always be kind of your first reaction, but kind of opening your eyes to the idea that your coworkers, your clients, your colleagues, anybody that you might be communicating with may prefer a different mode of communication. I mean, they might, they might like to be on the phone. Mm-hmm. They might like email. And so just sort of opening your eyes to the idea that they have their own preferences and maybe your first reaction because it's your preference isn't the preferred mode of communication for the yeah. person that you are attempting to deal with, um, I think is, um, again, and, and, and you know, uh, a beneficial thing to keep in mind as we talk about connection in the workplace and in life in general. I mean, that sort of thing extends well beyond the workplace, but, um, but it can start there. Yeah. And, and I, I think of, you know, so you look at all these issues that we talk about, whether it's communication or the built environment, how we get work done and how we feel about that whole arena it in a less sappy way i feel like it's like and i don't know if you watch survivor but um i'm a huge survivor fan and right now the current season is a is a battle of people who have won throughout whatever how many 20 something seasons you have people who were winners 20 15 years ago playing with people who just won a couple years ago or just this past year and the whole nature. So it's the same game being played, but it is so vastly different and it's evolved and there's all these different incentives and rewards and, and the way that um, people coalesce has changed and the whole concept of building coalitions and building these alliances and transactional alliances that you have these multiple alliances going on and it, it mimics a lot of these things that we're talking about um, how to get people to work together for a common goal and how some of the notions of work have changed or how the expectation of a, even, you know, our ideas about wellness are so vastly different through these different generations, but we're all, we all still have to play the same game together. So yeah, like you're, you know, in a less sappy way, the five love languages, just being able to communicate is, a complex issue and it can stall 
our best efforts, or it can be one of the best assets we have in working together is learning how to handle those mechanisms within organizational settings. And, and so I think it's, it's brilliant that you're, you're focusing on that and talking about that because it is, it is something I think we, we overlook and then we regret when something's not working right. And we wonder, well, why, why is that the case? And it's common. It's usually because our communication styles have been were so different that we couldn't get the message across in a timely way to get something accomplished. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can't believe survivors still run. I think it's like the, one of the longest running shows, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it, it, uh, I was a late bloomer to it too. I, I completely didn't understand it. The first few times I tried to watch it, I'd come in in mid season and think about, what am I, what's going on here? People voting each other. I didn't understand until I really, my, my wife um, was a big fan. So I started watching it with her. And now it's just like, it's like an addiction. So when it's on, we tape it, watch it, dissect it, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, well, and, obviously and I someone to explain things. <laughs> yeah. Well, someone like yourself who, who is uh so involved in, you know, dealing with human behavior and, um, and analyzing, you know, humans and thinking about people and, and how they interact with one another in real life. I'm, I'm sure, as you mentioned, that you have so many microcosms happening there, just um, kind of in, in the way that, that these people interact. Because yeah, I, I haven't seen Survivor in a while, but I do certainly remember the concept when it first came out. I think that was, you know, one of the really first mainstream reality kind of reality shows maybe maybe the actual the first um but uh yeah i had one more thought on the connection piece um because mm -hmm. you know there's kind of communication and then there's kind of like human connection which i think is really plays a role in all this um which is you know that obviously people have preference in the way in which the mode of communication, but also the type of connection. So like, um, you know, I think we, we, we can all relate to this concept that like, you probably have your friends that you, um, that you go to cause you like to, you know, drink beer and watch a sports game with them. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the way in which you connect with them. And then you probably have some friends that you can really get deep with and open up about, um, you know, talking about your personal relationships with them. And so, um, you know, we all have kind of these ways in which we prefer to connect with people. And they also have their ways in which they prefer to connect with us. And so that's another one to be aware of in that not everybody prefers to connect over in the same manner that we do. Um, so, um, you know, so there's both the mode of communication, whether it's picking up the phone or being in person, but there's also the type of connection and the way in which we relate to others um, that happens in personal life, but also in the workplace, you know, so there's certain, I think, being cognizant of the idea that certain coworkers want to connect in certain ways and, and others don't um, and being aware of that, that just our own, pro we, we tend to gravitate and default to our own preferred method of connection. Whereas um, being aware of other people's preferred um, methods of, of both connection and communication, I think can, can be really beneficial and, and incorporating these concepts, if we're going to kind of 
bring it back full circle to, to where programming has gone. I think bringing in some of these concepts in the way of training employees to be aware of these types of things is, is really where we should be at in terms of wellness is talking about some of these bigger ideas that, um, that really are just, again, quite simple when you break it down. It's just a matter of like being a good person, right? It's just like being a thoughtful, good human to your fellow humans. And like, I, I, I find myself joking about this with some people in the field sometimes where it's like, um, it's really, it can be really, really simple. It almost like comes back to the golden rule as like, just be a good person, right? Like if, if, if everyone in the workplace just treated others as they wanted to be treated, which is like the most basic of concepts, um, our wellness programs would be, would be great. You know? So it's like, um, it's, it's just kind of finding ways to, um, to creatively get back to these really simple concepts that we all strive for. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I feel like, yeah, people, and we we're talking about this as we're dragging the field back to just being a good human and <laughs> yeah. really, we're moving it away from so many different ways that it's been manipulated or uh, been co-opted or how, or how it's been built on, different like methods and strategies to try to um, change some things medically for the most part about us as, as humans. But really when it comes down to it, it it's that. And I, I wish companies would, you know, it's kind of like think about wellness as a way to avoid or to mitigate social isolation. Like if we would just look at what would be one of the most, um, the highest you know, social isolation continues to grow as a concept of people who are isolated tend to have health, unhealthy behaviors, tend to um, self-medicate for depression with alcohol and drugs. They tend to engage in online activity that is um, that contributes to these to these poor behaviors. They, you know, we we go down the list and different people have researched isolation. So if we just if we just look at social isolation. And we combat that. We would do ourselves a lot of favors by creating programs to increase social connection. When we do that, then we're bringing people together in positive ways, and we're giving them opportunities to share. And we're also, you know, mitigating those opportunities if they're left alone. So, at the work site or in other community or group settings, what are we doing to combat isolation? And if we do that, there's go back to your point about being a good human is to build community and be a part of something. And if we work on that, then we can get somewhere and we can really change that definition of wellness into something that's more humanistic and less medical or um, disease focused. And, And I think that would be doing us a huge favor. Yeah, I I think you're spot on there with kind of raising the collective consciousness around wellness not necessarily being um, what pe- what people thought of as wellness, and you know, you know, de- dealing with you know social isolation mm-hmm. and and allowing people to feel connected it, it, and um, all of the benefits that go along with that. I think, I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there with enough people like yourself who are out there having conversations and, and doing the work that you do and, and leading this, you know, this great podcast. I think we're, I think we're getting there. So, 
Um, it's encouraging. It is encouraging to see. I, I think, you know, um, we've got a long way to go. Certainly we're not, we're not there, but, um, but hearing some of the voices in the field, talk about the, the kind of things that you're talking about certainly gives me encouragement to know that we're, we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. And people like Vic, like, like we've talked about have been on the forefront of that. And so that, that helps carry the message because of the, the reach that they have. Um, I had, certainly. Yeah. I have, I have, so I have one question because us, so if we're wellness people, we're supposed to be wellness models. So after all this talk about connections and work, I want to ask you, how do you disconnect and how do you unplug and how do you recharge yourself? That's a good one. Um, <laughs> do you? Yeah. After we've talked about all the ways that we can work all the time and all the <sighs> instant messaging and all the ways we can stay focused on our work goals, like, okay, let's take a step back. How do, so if we're going to practice wellness, I, I want to know, Brett, how do you practice wellness? Yeah. So I, um, I'm a pretty, I keep myself pretty busy. So I'm really active. Uh, I love sports and I love going to the gym. So, um, anything I'm doing, anytime I'm doing something physical or athletic fitness related, it allows me to kind of tune out the rest of the world. And, and that is for me probably even more of a, um, a benefit mentally than it is even physically. So I'm pretty regular at the gym. I love playing basketball, tennis. I've actually gotten into this um, newer sport called pickleball. Not mm -hmm. sure if you've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is a lot of fun. My, my father plays that and got me involved and I, I'm like hooked on that. So I actually play, play, I'll be playing pickleball tonight. Um, so yeah, I find that like competing and, and being uh, physically active is, is a big one. Love to ride my bike, but above and beyond that, I find that, um, cultivating a sense of creativity, which for me does not come naturally. I am not a natural artist at all, mm -hmm. but I have gotten, um, super involved in ceramics and I found that using the potter's wheel as a way to kind of, um, leverage, uh, a tool like the, like the wheel. And I've gotten super into ceramics and I noticed like, I'll go sit there and throw on the wheel for like a couple hours and it is like meditation for me. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, um, yeah, like a couple hours will go by and I'll just, it's, it's like, you're, when, you know, I'm not looking at a screen, I'm not really, I, I, I'm talking to the people around me, but it's just, you know, just, just pure kind of social interaction. Um, that's, that's a great one for me. I mean, that accomplishes so much. It gets me away from technology. It gets me into kind of a, a moderately social environment, talking to people, but it also just kind of puts me in the zone and allows me to, um, like I said, kind of meditate, but also utilize this sense of creativity, which we know, um, all of the benefits that go along with, with that using, you know, and cultivating, um, one's sense of creativity. So, so that's great. Um, and friendships and family are super important to me. So just, you know, even just, you know, as far as disconnecting and spending time with loved ones, um, I, I really make it a conscious effort to uh, prioritize relationships um, and, and spend meaningful time with those people that are important to me. So that's a, that's another really big one. Um, 
So yeah, what about yourself? What are your? I'm sure you're, maybe maybe your listeners have heard this, but uh, but I'm curious. Um, oh yeah, I mean if if you go back and listen to the podcast, I usually bring up my trials and tribulations of trail running um, uh, okay. or CrossFit and the fact that I'm the worst overhead squatter in the country. Um, so, but uh, but yeah, I think you you touch on something, and and I talk a lot. There's a, there, and I've had really wonderful conversations. And, some of the other podcasts about this, about the mental health aspect of, of our, you know, you, so you look at exercise and oftentimes we just assume that we're talking about physical benefit. And for me, I grew up playing sports. I, I was a soccer player, played soccer, ran track and played lacrosse all in college. And then I've been a, a soccer coach at the high school and college level for 20 years now. So sports is absolutely significant to me. And, and then I, converted myself from a soccer player to a runner, to a marathoner, to an ultra marathoner. And I have a 50 miler coming up here in May that, that I'm attempting. I, I did it. Whoa. Yeah. I, I ran it the same race about eight years ago and then did a couple 50 Ks after that, but I haven't run a race this long in six years. And I, I went through this complete burnout of running and just was exhausted and, I just stopped loving it like I had. And I got through a 50 K about six years ago now, five years ago. And I, I just quit halfway through and I was, I wasn't feeling great, but let's be real. Like anyone who's running 50 K isn't going to feel great at some point in the race. Um, but I just didn't want to do it anymore. And then I came home and I was just upset with myself, but I was also really worried because that had been such a central part of my life. And that was where I processed life. So for me, running was more about my mental health than it was my physical health. And if I don't like running, like, where am I going to, how, where am I going to be mentally fit? Like, where am I going to take care of me? So I went down the, there was a CrossFit gym that had opened near me and a couple of people had been poking and prodding. My wife kept telling me, you should go, go try it out for us. And so I was going to be the lab rat for the family. (laughs) But I went down and just immediately fell in love with the regimen and the workouts and the community and all that. And then, and then just recently I started getting back into long distance running and I realized like how important that is to me to have that time. And, and I just really love it. So I, I'm embarking on another giant adventure, but you also talk about creativity. And so one of the, one of the things that, um, that I, sometimes bring up, but I was an art scholar in high school and then actually got an art scholarship to go to college. And so for me, that art and creativity is so natural to my understanding of my health and well-being. And I didn't think of it that way when I was younger, but now I see the value in it. And I, and I do some workshops with people where we do these self-portraits where we we don't draw ourselves as people because everyone's too afraid to draw themselves as a person and no one, you know, has art training. And so we don't want to diminish that. But if you think about yourself as an object, what would it be? And I go through like all of these different part lead up to getting to that point, but it is amazing how important that is for someone when they just take the time and they draw themselves as an object. And then they talk about their life and they talk about how they see themselves or how others see themselves and what are things that they love about themselves, but are, what are things that they want to work on? All this comes out from that creative process. So um, 
you know, so those are that creativity. I, I am so I'm impressed about your work on the potter's wheel. Ceramics was not my cup of tea. So I'd, I'm much more apt to do watercolors or um, pencil drawings or printmaking. Ceramics was always a messy process for me. So kudos to you for diving in. But yeah, I, I mean, much like you is that for me, the physical fitness part of my life is just as much a mental piece as it is physical. So I, I keep myself pretty busy, <laughs> obviously, with uh, like trying it. to train, trying to get my training up for this this run but yeah. it, it's well, all it's you a, really it's a vision quest <laughs> when yeah, it comes down to yeah. it. well it sounds like you did the right thing in terms of like taking a break from it and now you're able to appreciate it in a, i think a deeper way having come come back to it um yeah. so that's cool but yeah, sometimes yeah, i can, I can only break yeah sometimes you got to take a break and you know to to allow yourself to um, you know, just a break from it. And then you have a, a new appreciation coming back to it. But I can only imagine what your listeners are thinking when I say that I've been getting into pickleball and then you followed <laughs> up by saying that you're training for a 50 miler. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pickleball is fun though. Pickleball. pickleball, pickleball is fun. Is fun. <laughs> yeah. It looks, I, that is something I definitely want to try. It looks fun. So, uh, Yeah. And it's, it's all part of the same wheel of making ourselves happy and healthy. So <laughs> Absolutely. I, sometimes I think Absolutely. I'm, um, 50, a 50 mile run isn't the smartest thing to do, but, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'll let you know in May how it goes. Please do. If, yeah. uh, if these podcasts cease, then you know <laughs> it didn't go well. Well, you, you, you'll probably be able to, uh, to do an episode on the experience of that. That's a, I mean, you know, just kind of recapping everything from the training to, um, I mean, there's just so much mental fortitude that goes into completing a race like that. I mean, obviously there's the physical training, but I would imagine that in the, in the throes of that race, there's just as much of a, it's just as much, if not more of a mental test than it is a physical test. Yeah. Well, my, I had run a, when I started thinking, I, I'm, I usually don't say no to these things and that's sometimes a problem, but one of my, one of my good friends who had run a, we'd been running marathons together, did a couple together and he had run a, a race. He told me at some point in my life, I need to run further than Oprah Winfrey has. And that kind of hit me like, okay, you you have a very good point there. If Oprah can do the Chicago marathon, I need to run like one mile further than that. So I, uh, so we signed up for this 38 mile night run and while we were running, so we started at 8 PM and within an hour we were turning our headlamps on and we're running through these trails at night. And it was just this incredibly cool experience. But then along the path, along the trails were people that were in the throes of the, of, of their hundred mile run. So we would pass people that honestly were zombies and in my head, I'm thinking, what am I doing? Like, what, what world <laughs> if I, it, it was just this bizarre subculture kind of event thing going on. And I'm a part of this now. And yeah, it, it's crazy, but it's a, it's addictive. Like you you see people go through waves of doing well and then just falling apart, but then gathering themselves back and getting back on the trail. And it's like, 
if you want a model for human resiliency, just hang out at a, at a hundred mile ultra and just watch rest. People come in at the rest stops and you see everything. And then it starts to make you feel less, you know, you, you start to not worry so much about you because <laughs> you're like, well, no one has any sympathy for me because everyone else feels the same way I do. So better just get back out on the trail and just keep moving forward. But it's been a, it's been a, it's such a learning experience. And that's, that's a reason why I want to do it is not to run 50 miles for the physical benefit, but it's just to get out and just go through the process of self-discovery for however long it takes me and, and hope I get in under the time cut. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, good for you. What a, um, what a cool journey that you're, that you're going on with the, with the training and the actual race. I mean, that's just unbelievable. I've, I've never been a runner, but, um, you know, I, I, I think, and I never, you know, I, I grew up playing sports. Um, I was never into, um, to really weight training or, or going to the gym much until, you know, maybe about five years ago. Um, I started going. And so I think, you know, you know, you're, you, you like to run, you do CrossFit. I mean, I do kind of different stuff at the gym. And I think that really is a, a good, a, a testament to the idea of, you know, not placing all of fitness or exercise into a bucket, but really, you know, working hard at finding what works for you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think you and I are perfect examples on the creative, on the creativity front too. I mean, I, for years thought I'm just not creative. I can't draw, I can't paint. And I had pretty much cast myself off as just, you know, this, this, this non-artistic, non-creative person. And then I came across the potter's wheel and like kind of vibed with it and, and, and just, um, that is my like primary mode of creative expression now. And so, uh, I think it's a matter of finding the, um, the type of activity or the, the, whatever the case may be that, um, that you enjoy, you know, mm -hmm. that works for you. Um, cause if you enjoy it, if you feel good about it, if you have a high level of self-efficacy related to it, then you're obviously way more likely to sustain it. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, people who kind of pain their way through an exercise class and hate every minute of it, you know? Right. So, um, I think you and I are, are good examples of, you know, we're, we both have this sense of creativity, but in very different ways, we're both very active, but in very different ways. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're all, uh, we're all different, but I think just, you know, exploring, uh, enough to the, to the point where we find something that's enjoyable is, is really important as opposed to kind of giving up with, with the first thing that, that may not be as enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that exploration, that whole point of all of this is to discover something about ourselves. And if we focus on that, and I think people tend to, they stick with things, you know, it's, it's because they understand discovery. It's not an end all. It's not like we're going to change it all today, but it's let's discover and let's just, every day get a little better at it and eventually good things happen when we follow those paths for sure yeah so brett we're we're closing out here any last last thoughts and impressions you want to share here as we wrap it up um i don't think i have anything else to add uh it's been a really good discussion we've kind of woven in and out of different categories and, and come back to 
to different things. And, um, you know, I would just encourage anybody who's listening to status the or to question the status quo. And, um, you know, if, if anybody was, was struck by anything that was discussed today, I'm, I'm, I, I like, I'm kind of like, I consider myself like a wellness nerd. I mean, I, I actually enjoy discussing this sort of stuff. So, yeah. so feel free to reach out. Um, I don't know if you post um, my contact information anywhere, social media or LinkedIn. I mean, people can feel free to reach out to me directly if they want to um, talk about anything that, that was brought up or even something that wasn't brought up. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll make sure in our, in our posting here, everyone will have your contact information and, yeah, and and I uh, I look forward to having you on again some here soon and continue these discussions. Like you, I'm a big wellness nerd. I could talk all day about this <laughs> journey. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah man. And, and you know, it's just you just dive in, and it, there's so many different things that we can talk about. But um, you know, we wrapped around a lot of different pieces today. But I, I think yeah, the key that we keep coming back to is like you said, like be a good person and, and explore. And if we just focus on those things and stop siloing and bracketing wellness into things that are only about our, our physical health or sickness and, and disease, then we're just missing the point entirely. And so I, I applaud all the work that you're doing and, and what um, your, your work at AIPM and your focus on connecting people and, talking about generations and talking about not just generations, but how do we build better connections and how do we communicate better and how do we work together better? Cause we all have the same goal of, of really trying to be, to be um, the best person we can. And so that is, that's significant and definitely appreciate all the work that you've done. And likewise, back at you. Um, very grateful for, for your contributions to the field and really grateful for the opportunity to come on and discuss. It's been really enjoyable. Would love, you know, would love to come back sometime and, and follow up. And, uh, you know, I look forward to continuing to follow your journey in the field um, and see, uh, see what we can do. But it's, it's great to be uh, on this journey with you. Yeah. Thank you again. And and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, All right. Derek. Appreciate right. the opportunity. Thanks, yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.